This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. We're going to be preaching out of Acts. We're going to be Acts chapter 12, verse 25. And then we're going to carry that over into Acts chapter 13. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. So if you could stand with me, even though there's be long verses, I like reading them, right? So um, we'll, stand, we'll spend the first half of the sermon just reading the text, right? And then <laughs> but um, John, just read, read with me, and then we're going to dive in. All right, starting at 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the patriarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your intentions for us to, to go through this text even today, Lord. I ask that you will take your truths and that you would plant them deep inside of our hearts, Lord, that you would water them and cause them to blossom and bear much fruit to your glory. Father, we give you all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name. And the church says, amen. You may be seated. So when we're deal, dealing with big chunks of Scripture, there's always this wrestle with, man, what do, what do you cover and leave out? And, and, and like, so listen, we're going to cover a lot today, right? Because just this my time studying, I'm like, man, this is... This is good in, in, in studying, so, so we're going to cover a lot. I'm going to break it up into chunks, and then we're going to dive into those chunks. So looking at verse 25 and going through 13, 1 through, through 3. Let's, let's zoom in over there. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, 
When they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Right here inside this text, what I, you, you see more of what's going on with the church in, in, in Antioch. Now, and again, that's the same area where, where they was first called Christians. And I want to link here for a second because you see this mature example of, of a church, right? Like if, we, if, if we're saying, man, we want to, we want to be what, what, what God has called us to be as a, as a church body, I'm thankful that God gives these mature examples of, of what a church was doing. And Antioch was a sending church, and they sent a lot of people out in mission. Now, one of the things I think that was beautiful about this Antioch church that you see here is that it was a diverse church. When I say diverse, I mean there was a there was diverse in giftings because you point out, man, there was teachers here and there was prophets here. And any healthy church had to have a diverse set of giftings inside that church, and, and that's why we want to encourage people to walk in their giftings because it's all a part of of God building up the body and using um, the church for the purposes that He called them to. So on one end, you see that there's a diversity nature and gifting. And then also you see that the church was also diverse in ethnicity and background. You look at Barnabas, he was a, he was a Levite, right? Now, Levite has all this stuff going on with them concerning Israel, right? And then you look at Simeon. Simeon, he was a, a Jewish Christian, and they called him Niger, which was Latin for, for black. So he was probably from, from North Africa, right? Um, then you look at Lucius of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is a, a Greek city off the coast of, of Africa. And then you think of, 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 of Menaean. Now, Menaean, it said that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod, as we talked about before, he was the grandfather of Agrippa. He was the same guy that killed John the Baptist and the same guy that um, killed all them babies. So, so it's, 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 it's Beautiful and interesting how you have a guy that was a, a lifelong friend, and he, he, was, he worked inside the courts of Herod Agrippa, now here along with the starting of this church in Antioch. Then also you see Saul here, who was, who was well-educated, um, well-educated in Jewish um, understanding, um, came from a wealthy background. He was a Jew that was a Roman citizen um, at the same time, and at one time vehemently opposed to the gospel, and these are, are just five of the leaders that made up this, this church, which make you just see how beautiful it is when God used different people from different diverse backgrounds and, and, and come together. One of the things that you see also in the maturity of the church is that this was a church that was in tune with the Spirit of God as a body of believers, now, it's one thing to be in tune with the Spirit of God individually. It's another thing to be in tune with the Spirit of God collectively as a body of believers because they're, they're here, they're worshiping, and they're praying, and all of them has this, this, this sense of the Spirit's 
leading regarding sending people on mission out to the Gentiles. This is something that they can all like confirm. Like we all feel this. We all sense the Spirit of God calling out, not just calling out, even specifically with Paul and, and Barnabas, that in their worshiping, in their they, they're, they're praying, they hear the Spirit drawing out. So this, man, God does much things when you have a body of, that's collectively unified and in tune to the Spirit of God, can hear him and confirm with one another, man, this is something that God is doing. Not just you got just one guy that's just saying this, and everybody like, oh, okay, we all do it. But everyone is hearing from the Spirit of the Lord. That's a big deal when it comes to a church living on mission together, right? Because they all can confirm and, and, and say, man, we, we, yeah, we, we, we see that, we hear that. Another thing about this this mature church that you see here, which was a common practice of, of the believers, that it said that they was committed to worship, prayer, and fasting. This is what they was doing here. Now, when you think about worship, prayer, and fasting in, in, in context to, to our churches, like especially a lot of churches here um, in the West, right? Now, I think, I think worship is probably be one of our strongest suits because we have like incredible bands like you've seen today, this morning, um, our Rising Sound, who's normally playing. And I mean, we have a lot of good worship songs and a, a lot of good worship. Um, and, and the thing is, though, that I think... I think we need to growing is, is, is seeing like worship not just being a particular time in the service or worship not just being a particular time um, in our home. Like, all right, now this is worship time. But where we, we want to grow in is seeing worship in, in how we walk out the mundane areas of life. The, the little things, like how we do these little normal things in, 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 in the way that we do it is a way of worshiping God. And how we do the little things, how, how, how we interact with our spouses, how we interact with our, our children, how we go to work, and how, how we do every single thing. And seeing that, the way that we do it is, is, is worship. So I, while I think worship inside this, in this set, and I'm not saying for everybody, but at large in general, I see worship as the strongest one. I also see much room for the Spirit to, to mature us in regards to what worship looks like and taking it out of this compartmentalized thing and rather this all-of-life thing. But moving from worship, well, I'm not really moving from worship, but the other thing they, they worship is that they was, they was there praying, right? Now, praying is another area that I think we, we, can, we struggle a little bit more in because I mean, not many of us spend a lot of time in prayer. Like, like, all right, we know, all right, let me pray right here. Let me pray right there. But not many of us linger in the spirit of God in prayer, linger, spend time listening to hear from him, hear him speak back to us. Or what are you just saying to me, Lord? I'm, like, like we, we know how to, how to pray and, and, and say the words, but, but when prayer becomes um, a part of our identity, a lifestyle, and, and, and how we linger in prayer, in much prayer, because this was a regular thing, not just like during a particular service, but regular aspect of life. So you have worship. This is Reflection of this mature church, um, praying a reflection of this mature church, but it also said fasting was 
a reflection of this mature church. And I think fasting is the one that we, we struggle with the most. And the reason why I say, and when I say we, I'm talking about here, the Western church. The reason why I think fasting is the one we struggle with the, the most is because we're used to an abundance of stuff. We're used to having much of everything around us that we want. And, and we, we, we're used to that. But not only are we used to having an abundance of stuff, we're used to having what we want when we want it, too. Like, man, I want some food and stuff. I could pop it in the microwave and have it right now. I want to watch this, this, this series. and I don't got to wait until next week when the next one comes out. I turn on Netflix and I can watch them all right now. Like, everything we have is geared toward making us have what we want when we want it, knowing that there's an abundance of it all the time. It also makes it hard to abstain when everyone else is indulging. I think all that makes it harder for fasting because we're not used to knowing that we have all this abundance and knowing that we can have it when we want to, but yet still purposely choosing not to have it and not to take it. But fasting becomes such a chore to us. Like, we'll do it, but it's more like a chore, not a natural way of, of, of life and denying ourselves. I mean, even so much so that... that, that we raise our kids inside this way of, 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 of we try to make like, like Christian versions of things so our kids won't have to abstain or feel left out when they abstain because their friends are indulging. And we don't, these things turn into other things later on, though. Do everything so they don't have to feel left out. And you don't see the beauty in it. And, 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 and it's not like you're feeling left out. This is, this is like I'm purposely denying Verse 2, it says, the Holy Spirit set apart Barnabas and Saul. This is what the Holy Spirit was saying. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I called them. Now, a lot of us, when we think about the whole idea of being set apart, we think about being, being separated, but here's where the, the struggle is at, because a lot of times when we, like, we, we, this is pendulum, we either go on one side or the other, and a lot of times when we think about being separa- separated, being set apart, it's like you're just being set apart for set apart's sake, separated for separation's sake, just to be set apart, and, 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 and we even start like, man, how I want to be separated. I want to be set apart. And, 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 and every single thing that we consider secular, you're like, ah, oh, man, that's so secular. And, and, and so you want to separate from that. And we often find our identity in this separation just for the separation's sake. And we like, that's what we find our identity at and we find our joy at. And we think it finds our, our, our strength at. And you're just separated just for the sake of being separated. And it's merely just like, like, like display pieces, right? It's sort of like, like when I was growing up, my mom's, like, and, and my mom, she had like the living room, right? The living room and the living room couches, like those, it was separated from the rest of the house. Like you can't play in the living room. You can't even, like, we couldn't even go in the living room. Like, we couldn't, we had to, like, if the living room was right here, you had to go out the back door and go around our house so you wouldn't even pass the living room, right? 
And we even had, we had the couches, and the couches had plastic on them and stuff, just in case them rowdy kids came inside there. The living room was definitely set apart for us, and we, would, we never fellowshiped inside the living room as a family. It's crazy. The living room was in our house, but the only time that we fellowshiped inside the living room was on, like, special occasions like Christmas or something like that, right? So Christmas time, we can go inside the living room, tear it up because we have, like, wrapping paper all over the place, and stuff. then we, we hurry up and clean it up and stuff, and then next year, we get to go hang out inside there again. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. It was more like on display for the guests, but set apart for us, right? When, when, when guests came over, we had certain family functions, then the living room was okay to go inside there and stuff. And I, and I, and I get it. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to knock on it because I get it. Like, like, like she, she didn't want the living room to get messy. She didn't want the couches to get messy. And, 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 the, and, the, and the struggle was real financially. You know that you don't have the money to replace it if it got messed up. So it was like, man, you know, the little bit of money that I did have and the, the little nice things that I do have, I put inside the living room, but then y'all raggedy kids jack everything up. <laughs> so the living room was set apart, right? And there was a display piece. But the reason why I want to just, just point that out, like if we're not careful in the effort to be set apart, we become like those couches. We become like that living room just set apart, almost like a display piece, but not for the functional benefit of everything else. We got to keep in mind, the Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In Ephesians 2 and 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, we like being set apart, you're set apart with a purpose or with a work in mind. Not just set apart for the sake of being set apart, but you're set apart with a purpose and a work in mind. You're set apart with a heartbeat for what I'm going to do, why I have been set apart. Like, like picture, like, like a lot of us are watching the um, basketball right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So think about that from an NBA standpoint, right? In the picture, you have the, you have the guy that's about to be sent in to the floor, right? Sent into the game. And so, so he's sort of like set apart for the rest of the team who's over here. He's set apart from them right here, waiting for the buzzer to hit so he can go in and stuff. And his mindset, he's thinking, you see him, he's looking at the floor. He's looking at his mission field. He's looking where he's being sent into. He's not just apart from them just for the sake of being apart from them. He knows that he's apart from them because he's about to be sent in and he's thinking about his mission field. Or picture a mechanic or a painter or somebody that does, does works with his hand, a construction worker, and he knows that he has a job that he's about to do, and he takes his tools that, that, are, that, are, that he needs for the particular job, and he sets them aside for the particular job. We got to see God doing that exact same thing and, and us as tools inside of his hands that he's setting aside for the particular job that he had from before we was even created that we was created for. Now we need to, to, to live with a sense of set-apartness with the work in mind. Because if you're not living set-apart with the work in mind, you're just a display piece off to the side. 
just something to look at, but that's it. We got to live set apart and sent to. Now, if we live our lives practicing being set apart without the mindset of being sent to, then, then we'll become relationally awkward and disconnected from where we are being sent to, and they will see and feel that same awkwardness. We have to see that. With that in mind, we, we still need to be distinctly set apart, though. Like... Go into the emergency room. You need to be able to know who's the nurses and doctors and who's the people that need medical attention. You need to know the difference between the police officers and the civilians when, when emergency is going on. Your house is on fire. You need to be able to know the difference between the firefighters and stuff and the regular spectators with their cell phones out. You need to know the difference between, like, when you go inside the store and it's like a big store, like, man... I hate it if I go inside the store and I can't tell who works inside the store and who doesn't work inside the store. I'm like, yo, you work here? Nah, I don't work here. Well, my bad, then. You wearing their colors? Take it off. <laughs> you knew you was coming. Nah, just playing. But, um, but people need to know, though. They need to know that, 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 that you have this connection with the God of all creation. Otherwise, if there's nothing to stink about you, people will think that you're just as lost as they are. They won't even think to even come to you to ask you about anything so that you can point them in the direction of our great God. There has to be something about you that's distinct in some way, shape, or form that says, well, let me talk to him, let me talk to her. We get so caught up not wanting to, to, to be separated that we become undistinguishable. They won't think to come to ask you. Let me get to verse 4. Verses 4 and 5, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now, I love that, that as we walk through Acts and we, we spend so much time in Acts, that there's always this focus on the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that does the sending, and it's important for us to understand. It's not man that does the sending. If it's man that does the sending, then, 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 then you're jumping ahead. You need the Spirit of God to do the sending, and then we as a church, and, and we confirm that, and we join in part of the sending. It's the spirit of Jesus that does the sending. He sends you out on mission, and, and then the church functions as the hands and the feet of Jesus in the process of the sending. Now, when we understand that it's about what God is doing, not me, and, and we submit to the flow of what God is doing, then we walk in unity with Christ, and we become on mission with God in concert with the Trinity. We become on mission with God in concert with the Trinity. When you look at, at sending, like the, the grand narrative in Scripture regards to sending, you see the Trinity in action. You see God the Father sending the Son who sends the Spirit. 
And we being in, in harmonious, harmonious relationship with, 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 with God, unified with Christ. Now, we are sent with Christ because we're united to him. We're sent with Christ and we walk through the power of his spirit. Now, when we start thinking about what are some ways that the spirit sending ties in with, with, with being set apart, ways that God may be, be, be prepping and setting people apart, we, we start looking at the gifts and the talents that they have, the passions that you have, and, and, and the burdens that you have that other people may not have and stuff, but then you start bagging on somebody else because they don't have the same type of burdens that you have, but probably the reason why you have that particular burden because it's a part of God setting you apart for that, and God is setting them apart for this. Instead of measuring people based off of whether or not we have the same burden at the exact same time. Like some people, like we all should have a general burden, but then, but then some of us have a bigger burden for a particular thing more than other people. And it's a part of, 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 of God's design for us and his sending of us in a particular area of mission that he has for us to be in. Some may have a burden to go overseas. Some may have a burden to just to be here locally. But all that ties into the same thing. I think our problem is that a lot of times we do what we want to do, what we think about doing, even when it's like, like the jobs that we take, the schools that we go to, where we choose to live at. A lot of the times we, we don't go to God and ask God, what do you want? We think about what we want. We think about the type of house that we want to live in or the type of neighborhood that we want to live in. We think about the type of job that we want to go to or we want to work at. We think about, about, about what school we feel will, will help prep us the most for the type of education that we want. But we rarely say, Lord, where do you want to take me? Like, like, what if this school over here is like the best school to give you the best education, but... That's not where God has for you to go. He wants you to be over here because there's certain connections that you're going to make over here. But you don't spend time lingering to God in prayer. Lord, where do you want me to go? You sit down and think about where I want to go, and then you want to carry God on mission with you instead of you being on mission with God. When our personal comfort and earthly desires are the primary driving factors of our school and work and living decisions, we're not living on mission with God. It's when we sense this being called or being sent, when that becomes the primary decision-making factors, now we're living on mission. Lord, where do you want me to live at? Where you want me to live at may, mat- may not match up where I want to live at, right? Because this particular area has a, a better house, and it has better schools, and it has better this, and it has better that. But where you're calling me to live at has jacked-up houses and jacked-up schools. And I'm like, I don't want my kids living over there. And, those, and that's, that's real concerns and wrestle, because you want to be there for your kids. But, but what does it look like to submit to God and trust God in all of that? So we rarely do that. People rarely say, Lord, where do you want me to live at when they're looking for a place to live? It's the difference between 
just going on mission and, and living on mission inside the heart, right? And so because sometimes, like for some people, going on mission is, oh, I, I went on this mission trip for this particular time, and then I came back to normal living, right? But when you're living on mission, right, then it's not compartmentalized. And living on mission may carry you abroad or may carry you locally at different times, but all the time I'm living on mission. All the time. I didn't go and then come back to normal life all the time. And then when the Spirit leads and sends me during the course of mission, it's up to Him. But I trust Him in all of it. And all the time, that's what I'm doing when I'm at home. Like, you never stop being a missionary. You never hang that up. I'm a missionary as a husband. I'm a missionary as a wife. I'm a missionary as a student. I'm a missionary as a teacher. I'm a missionary as a construction worker. And it never stops. That's my identity. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, I don't know if I even pronounced that right, but am I? All right, good. I'll jack everything up. <laughs> Y'all be so confused. <laughs> so when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. A Jew was false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So you have you have it. Here's the backdrop. You have you have the proconsul, right? Now the proconsul, he's like a governor, right? If you want to picture what it, what his role is like, he's like a governor. So he's in this position of authority, right, over a particular area. Then you have Bar Jesus, also known as as Elamus. It's customary in these times to, for people to have two names. Just right inside this whole text, they're like, you have Mark, who's also known as John. You have Bar-Jesus, who's also known as Elimus. You have Paul, who's also known as Saul. Like everyone had, like, their, their birth name, their government name, and their hood name, right? <laughs> On them streets, they call me. <laughs> but Elimus means sorcerer or magician. That's what it means, literally. And then, and then it's, it's weird because Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. Now, I think it's interesting because now, now you have Bar-Jesus who was this, this false prophet in the air of the proconsul. Then you have Paul and Barnabas, and, 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 and they had this, this true gift of prophecy and, and, and teaching. So, it's like, so picture this. When you think about this text... Here's the movie that comes to mind, Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you guys, I'm a Lord of the Rings head, right? You know what I'm saying? And you have the one time where, where, where Gandalf goes in and he's talking to King Theoden, remember? And then you had the, the nasty looking guy on the side and stuff inside the air king. Yo, don't listen to them. I don't know, y'all remember that? All right, all right, good, 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 good. Right, you're, you're following me. <laughs> But that's what I think about right there, right? Now, 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 
This is one of the reasons we have to pray for those in positions of authority and leadership. I don't care if you like them or don't like them, but you need to pray for them because literally there are forces of darkness that function as, as like false prophets in the ears of these people seeking to direct them away from the truth. It's important to understand that. And they go inside and they're, and they're preaching the gospel and, and and then you have the false prophet that's like, nah, that ain't really true. Look at 9 through 12. 9 through 11. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. He knew words, huh? You villainous villain, right? Anyhow, um, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, even though we point out that, that this is something that you got to be careful for, and need to be praying for, for those in positions of authority. Like, it's not just something that have to happen to those in positions of authority. Luke points out Paul's response. And he makes sure it's clear that we know that it was of the Holy Spirit, not just of Paul, right? He said the Holy Spirit moved on him. And this is how he responded, being led by the Spirit of God. And when Paul goes in, if you realize this, Paul confronts Bar-Jesus' very name. Because Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. And Paul goes in, he's like, nah, far from it, you son of the devil. See, sometimes the way the enemy works is he presents to us Jesus-ish stuff. Gospel-ish stuff. Things that aren't the gospel, things that aren't Jesus, but they're gospel-ish or Jesus-ish. And when I say that, I mean it's like, it's sort of like the gospel, but it's sort of catered to my sin, and it makes it okay for me to go ahead and do it. And I'm like, yo, I'll, I'll run with that. And I'll find an okay spot with that. And a lot of times, that's exactly how the enemy gets after us, by presenting things that's sort of like what you really need, but ain't it. And you'll sit right there before you know it. It's led you way far away. And we got to be careful for that. And, and because... The only way that these things become exposed is when you, you stack them up next to the truth of the gospel. And when you stack them up next to the truth of the gospel, you, you stack them up next to, to, to the true king of all creation. That's when they become exposed for what they really are. Not only is the falsehood of these lies exposed, but the aim and purpose of these falsehoods are exposed. And you see it in how Paul responds to him. See, the enemy wants you to think it's just about you or it's just about this particular area of your life. You're like, 
all right, man, this particular area of my life, I'm having this struggle, but then in all these other areas, I'm doing really, really good. It's just about the enemy attacking this particular area, or it's just about the enemy attacking just me and what I'm going through. And it's not just an enemy of, of you, or it's not just an enemy of a particular aspect of your life. Listen, if the enemy attacks one member of the body, he's attacking the body, not just that one member of the body. That's not like you're trying to send your leg to the ER room. Now, nah, the whole, you all go to the ER room, right? Because if one part hurts, the whole body is affected by it. Paul doesn't go in and just say, hey, listen, you enemy of the pro-council, or are you enemy of Paul and Barnabas? He says, you enemy of all righteousness. This particular attack on you is a part of the enemy's attack on all righteousness in and of itself. And what it does, he says, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? What it does is it, it, it presents you with this perversion of the gospel and sells it to you as truth. It presents you with this crooked path and sells it to you as straight. That's what he gets confronted on. That's what the enemy does day in and day out. He said, that's, that's straight, but it's crooked. Let me say this as I get ready to close out. In 12, it says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It's wonderful here when you look at the, 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 the heart behind what's going on here. Paul was once blinded by Jesus and rendered unable to see, but his blindness was to lead him to eternal sight. For Jesus was blinded by Jesus via the spirit of Paul or the, the Holy Spirit through Paul. And he was rendered unable to see, but his blindness was judgment upon him and led him to darkness. And here it is, the Lord, he teaches the proconsul by demonstrating the power of the God who sent that very gospel by allowing him to see it. One man is blinded and the other is allowed to see. A miracle done by Jesus through one whom he both blinded and allowed to see. And Paul says that he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. And it's interesting when he says this, the way that God was teaching was by both word and deed. Not just by what Paul had said, but also the display of the power regarding it when confrontation. The question we got to ask ourselves at the end of the day is, do your words affirm your deeds and do your deeds affirm your words? Or do they send this totally conflicting story? As we live set apart and we live sent on mission, 
Here's what you always want to know. That God is teaching others through what you say. And he's teaching others through what you do. Others hear what you say. Others see what you do. And if you are not submitted to the spirit of God and what you say and what you do, the enemy will use that as as an opportunity to teach a different narrative. Believe me, he's teaching. That's why it's so important for us to stay submitted to God and submitted to his, his spirit and all that we say and all that we do. So what we say and what we do continues to reflect the mission that we're on, that they're in concert with one another. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.